So we're here tonight on the second week of a series that we're centering around fear. More accurately, how fear tends to shape us um, in ways that we don't always recognize. Um, how fear motivates us and what we would live like, what our life as a community would look like, what our individual lives would look like, what Durham would look like if we were less motivated and less driven by fear uh, as a way of thinking and as a way of making decisions. Uh, and we're taking that conversation tonight into our minister's liturgy and, and really, as we always do in the fall, sort of emphasize, you know, who are we as a community? Sort of recommitting together as new folks come in uh, around what makes Emmaus Way Emmaus Way. And a huge part of that is the minister's liturgy and the first vow of that liturgy is to imitate Christ in thought, word, deed, and affection. All that to say our call to gather takes us straight into the center of those intersecting topics. Jesus and fear. So this from Henry Nouwens in the name of Jesus. But Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It is the ability and the willingness to be led where you would rather not go. So that's to kick us off tonight. And as always, we like to involve our kids in some element of our liturgy. And Rhody, who's just taken over not long, what, three weeks hence, uh, working with our kids on a weekly basis and helping shape their curriculum, has taught them the first uh, verse to this traditional Irish hymn that we already know and love. And now they're getting to know and love as well. So yeah, lead us, kids and Rhody. and roadie and I'll just say yeah we're also like our third week in this new space and one of the things we were noticing last week is wow we can hear each other singing here in a very different way so yeah how great and we'll bid you kids off um, upstairs to go learn about what this you're talking about second vow of the minister's liturgy this week right yeah they're a week ahead of us as is often the case so sustainability upstairs Jesus downstairs <laughs> So, in way of announcements, things going on in the community, I have a couple of things that were given to me very shortly ago by Molly. One is that there's going to be a sort of, as there often is, a fall gathering of sorts. Molly, would you like to talk about what that is? Amen. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> we missed them all. 
Shah. Planning. Planning. <laughs> Molly first looked up football, and then she looked up the schedules around which football is played. Yeah, okay. Yeah, wow. It's a lot of, yeah, this, is a, this date is very important in terms of its planning. So yeah, join Molly on September 16th, 11 o'clock at their place, which is over on West Lakewood. Um, and then I think there is a Durham can thing happening this week. Tim Wooten, is Tim, did he just go upstairs with kids? Uh-huh. Does either anybody know more about this than me? Molly. Yeah, um, there are relational meetings on Tuesday with the mayoral candidates. Mm -hmm. Each institution has been invited to bring one or two folks to these. Um, it starts at 6.30 from my understanding at the EMI Christian Center. If you have interest and want to attend, um, email to And I think it was like five or six of us got a chance to be out at the, uh, what do they call it? Metro Council this past week. There's like 100 people there. It's a season of sort of growth and energy for Durham Can, not just going into the mayoral race, but I think really working on bringing more organizations to the fold and emphasizing a thicker sort of connection between the organizations that are part of Durham Can and the work of Durham Can. So if that sort of like nonprofit or non grassroots, nonpartisan political advocacy sort of thing um, rings for you. Yeah, there's probably a lot of opportunities to get more engaged with what's going on in Durham Can these days. I don't have anything else announcement-wise. Does anybody else want to anybody know anything that I don't know? Okay. So I'll just say by way of introduction, I asked Molly and she said she wasn't going to talk a ton about this, but a few words about our minister's liturgy because we are starting what will be four, maybe five weeks, a number of weeks um, focusing on that and taking our sort of the centerpiece of this fall series that's engaging in a broader way with fear and pointing that through our minister's liturgy, um, which has always been what we call a rite of belonging, which is when new folks come to the community, it's a way of gathering around a central commitment to Christian practice as opposed to setting boundaries around a community based on belief or identity. We say we gather around this minister's liturgy and the practices that it commits us to as a way of uniting ourselves as a community and saying who we are and what we're about. And so as we think about how not to be afraid or how fear shapes us, it seems like it makes a lot of sense to go back to these commitments and say, as a community, um, people freely gathered around these things, people have in some way committed to them, what, how, how is fear and how is a fearlessness shape who we are as ministers, liturgy, people. Also, there's been a sort of broader congregation that Molly and I and the staff and really a sort of body of about 12 or so folks invited some folks in to say like, hey, this minister's liturgy, which was crafted by a group of three or four people about 10, 12 years ago, actually none of whom still attend Emmaus Way. Um, many of whom I'm sure still love Emmaus Way, but Dan Rhodes was one, you know, is a good example of someone who's really formative in our community, building that language and is now um, serving elsewhere. So we thought it would actually be a great time in a new space 
um, going into the fall and, and actually having built a kids curriculum around this liturgy to reinvestigate the language and say, not to change the content of what we're committing to a lot, but does the language that we're using to describe these commitments fit the community that we've become 10 years hence? And so as we're dialoguing, you'll see some of, some of the language, not that we're saying this is it, but we're trying out some new ways of articulating these six vows. Um, the only exception to that is actually tonight's, which we left exactly the same as ever it was. But yeah, that's a little bit of intro into what's sort of shaping this conversation. But yeah, to get further into that, Mark, why don't you prepare us in song? Thanks, Ben. So I was trying to pick a few songs out that would take us in a couple of different directions. One, if our first vows talking about imitating Christ in thought, word, and deed, then I thought um, it would be interesting to explore musically the ideas of, um, of imitation, of inheritance, of ways that the things inside us uh, may be in some ways, um, not necessarily predetermined, but, but parts that are in us that are passed on uh, to us from others. Uh, and then... So we'll explore that in the first couple songs, and then the last song I'll introduce as we get there. How much of my mother has my mother left in me? How much of my love will be insane? some degree What about this feeling that I'm never good enough Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood How much of my father am I destined to me just to satisfy someone Will I let this woman kill me or do away with just love Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood I can't feel the love I want I can't feel the love I need but it's never gone change it if I want it. Can I rise above the flood? Will it wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? Well, how much like my brothers do my brothers want to be? This broken home become another Nobody ever could Will it wash out in the water Or is it always in the blood well, I can feel the love I want I can feel the love I need Is it all gonna come the way I am Could I change it if I want it Can I rise 
wash out in the water Is it always in the blood? And I can feel the love I want I can feel the love I need But it's never gonna come the way I am Could I change it if I want it? Can I rise above the flood? Or do I shout in the water? song that I've been a fan of for a long time. Never really had an opportunity to do it. But it felt like during a series where we're talking about fear, it might be an interesting exploration. Of 
afraid of her empty home. She's afraid that her faith is flown. Afraid of losing memory. Afraid of losing. She wishes she could strangle time and put it in a prison for stealing her blind. Bring back her riches from the rubble of her wishes where she's let them lie. She's not afraid of sticks and stones, she's not afraid of thunderstorms, she's not afraid. Of a spark bomb blowing the world in little pieces, but she's afraid of a life alone. She is afraid of an empty home. She is afraid that her faith has flown. Afraid of losing. Afraid of losing memory. Afraid of losing memory. So I thought if, if, uh, if we are talking from our first vow tonight of talking about imitating Christ in thought, word, deed, and affection, it seemed to me that, that we ought to do a song that, um, that says Jesus was a homeless man. Well, he did not have a home. Frequently, you took off your shoes and you scratched your feet because you knew that the whole world belongs to the meat. You did not have a home. No, you did not have a home. And you did not take it away. There were pretty maids all in a row, lying up to touch the hem of your robe. But you had no place to take them, so you did not take a wife. No, you did not take a wife. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. You had the shoulders of a homeless man. No, you did not have a home. They had no stones to throw You came without an axe to grind You did not tow the party line No wonder sight came to the blind You had no stones to throw No, you had no stones to throw And your old ass is full 
They spread the coats and cut down palms For you and your donkey to walk upon But the world won't find what it thinks it wants On the back of an ass's foal So I guess you had to get sold Cause the world can't stand what it can't own And it can't own you cause you did not have a home Birds have nests, foxes have tents Hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man You had the shoulders of a homeless man No, you did not have a home Birds have nests, foxes have dens But the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man You had the shoulders of a homeless man Cause the world can't stand what it can't own It can't own you cause you did not have a home Mark, um, and on those great songs of preparation as we dive into the first vow of our minister's liturgy tonight. Uh, exciting, exciting times. But before we do that, we're going to pass the peace. Um, if, you're, if you've not been with us in this space, I wanted to remind you, bathrooms, there are two directly behind us, and then there are two upstairs. Maybe that's just important to me, but I always like to know where the bathrooms are. And then food and drink are back there. But greet someone you haven't seen in a while. Um, share the peace of Christ with one another, and we'll gather back in just a few moments. So just a word before I get going. Um, this was, there's a slim chance, but a chance that I will get through part of this dialogue whenever we, whenever we get to the question part. Um, ben is going to come up and lead that. Just I had an, one of my infusions on Thursday for lupus, and it's really it's been taking a bit longer to get over this time. But I'm hopeful that we can get it through because I love the dialogue and I love hearing what you all have to say. But that's why I strategically, y'all are going to be talking a lot. So <laughs> that's also my that's also me saying um, I really want to hear from you. Um, tonight. So last week, we kicked off our fall series by talking about fear, right? And asking ourselves, what would we do if we weren't afraid? And one thing we noted about what we might do if we weren't afraid was to have the courage to tell the truth about what it is in front of us. Because as we saw from Exodus 1 and 2, by saying truths out loud, one truth can call forth another, and we never know who may be listening. We never know who may be waiting for a reason to come stand with us as we learn to live lives without an all-consuming fear so that we might more fully live into the kingdom of God. And at Emmaus Way, I think, one way that we tell truths or more accurately live into a fuller embodied reality of the kingdom of God is through our minister's liturgy, our right of belonging. In some ways, through the minister's liturgy, though the minister's liturgy can feel a bit overwhelming or perhaps too impossible, especially in the words of Rick Morley, when fear hangs on us like humidity on a summer night, coating us front and back and attracting all kinds of grime 
so that even when it dries, it's still sticky. And yet, it is this right in which we root our community as co-ministers of the gospel. And as part of the minister's liturgy, we vow to imitate Christ in thought, word, deed, and infection. Affection. What does imitation even mean, though, when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. And when Jesus reminded us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But he also said things like, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Feed my lambs, look after my sheep. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Take nothing for your journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he told us pretty bluntly, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Mm -hmm. So, I want to hear from you. How do we begin to imitate that? So, I know I've read the Beatitudes, but I'm still going to talk now. <laughs> I want to turn to the songs that we that we think that um, Mark moved us through, and I just I, I feel like the music here is you know, that we we do a lot of work through art, but it really struck me today how much um, these songs felt like they were about the people in Texas and Louisiana, the people in Nigeria the people in India and Bangladesh who are under lots of floodwaters. 
And I just thought there was a lot of imagery about water rising or about not being afraid of thunderstorms um, or not having a home. And so, I, I, first of all, I just want to say that was, what's, that was something that spoke to me. Um, and it spoke to me that the imitation of Christ is one who knows the human condition about being in floods and homeless and these really difficult situations. So to your question, Molly, how do we begin to imitate this? I, I think about the fact that in my life I don't think of myself as somebody who's flooded or homeless. Um, and so, but there are people who are flooded and homeless. And so when they get to hear Christ is actually like you, I think that that's a radical. <laughs> like it, it's this other thing that people, some people, it's not that they have to imitate Christ, it's that Christ is with them in suffering. And I think that it, that's probably true of me too, except I'm blind to my own suffering or numb to it or something, or denial. Um, it just really strikes me that in some ways, Christ also imitates and comes close um, to the flooded, the homeless, those who are put out of their home. Um, and so this must be comforting in a really powerful way. Very much so. Thanks for that, Christine. Not only, not only are we imitating Christ, but Christ is us, right? And with us and with those in Houston and all over the world who are flooded and homeless. Very much so. Other thoughts? How do we begin to imitate Christ? Yeah. Um, I first of all want to say very quickly, my name is Arthur and I'm a member of Calvary. Um, I'm happy to be here, I'm happy to have been invited because as a co-lady there, one of my jobs is to get a feel for what's going in the congregation so I can help the minister understand what he or she may need to help serve the congregation. One of the things I've been saying since I was there is that, and of course people know this already, but we say it anyway so that we don't forget what we're supposed to do, is that the body of Christ reaches into so many different ways and it's so easy that if you're in one group or one denomination to assume that everything there is to know about it is within that group of denomination. So I keep making it my business to say, wait a minute, <laughs> the brethren are everywhere, you can see things differently. So if I may share something that I've been sharing with them, it's been recurring to me on a regular basis. And that is, to imitate Christ means that you are entering a lifelong work of total transformation. It's not that so much we're going to be transported from earth to some other place, but we're going to be transformed wherever we are. Why Jesus, you spoke of radicalness, the most radical thing about all of Jesus' teaching, in fact all the prophets, and all the writings from Genesis to Revelation, they keep referring to the fact that the principles behind instruction 
is is completely out of sync with the way we tend to think as animate creatures struggling to survive. It is uh, what's the word? Total, totally counterintuitive to everything we think of when we're going out every day to try to make a living and protect our children and save for the future, etc., etc. And that is again because we're being transformed. So it goes back to what I'm thinking about when he speaks about the earth coming to the meek. Many people in the world who have not yet had their minds open to the deeper side of Jesus' teaching are so concerned with survival that they're not understanding life, how to live. Jesus' teaching transcends all of that and says to really live, you're going to have to be bold and challenge everything that you've gotten used to. Meekness, as I'm trying to figure out how do I define meekness in a way that makes sense to people who think it's a failing or weakness. Meekness is not weakness any more than humility is. It is simply submission to principle, a greater mindset. The scripture says the righteous are as bold as lions, so that when you become confident that something works, you stop being afraid to do it. And so this meekness is actually a, a, a sort of a, a, a gateway to a great uh, strength and confidence, which allows you to be to do things in an entirely different way and become a sort of a conduit for this kind of transformation that we have to face. So how do we imitate that? It's like we have to be you, we, you know, we have to get used to the idea of being a willing participant in our own disruption, that is the disruption of the old person. And it's, it has to start off very small because it's incredibly daunting. You know, each one of the tiny speck in the sea of humanity, but that speck, that faith grows and that's beautiful. We have to be willing to be a piece of our own destruction. I love. Yeah, very much so. It's scary, right? It's something to be. It's something to be afraid of, right? In many ways, this vow to imitate Christ, to be a follower. Like no wonder we have a lot of fear around it, right? It's a really tall order to embody. And yet, this is our vow. Growing up with a father who is a systematic theologian in his day job is quite the experience, really. And while I grew up knowing in one way or another that theology mattered and mattered deeply, it wasn't like my father was having me read Bart or Schleiermacher or Moltmann or these like, you know, strong theologians as a six-year-old or even a 10-year-old, that only happened like at age 14, but, <laughs> but my entire life, my dad would share these phrases over and over, hoping, I think, that one day they'd stick and that these phrases wouldn't screw us up too much in the long run. And one of them is, I especially remember, and he told my brother and I this since we were very, very little, and it was cling to Christ and to everything else be uncommitted. Cling to Christ, to everything else be uncommitted. 
And I think at many, in many ways, that's what is at the heart of this first vow. It's as if we're vowing together that in the struggle ahead, in the discontent, in the discomfort, in all the times when we wonder if we're really following God, if God is even there, if there is only a formula for following Jesus because we just don't know if we're headed in the right direction, for those times, we are to remember to cling to Christ and to everything else be uncommitted. Because I think it's in that clinging that we better understand how we might imitate Christ. And it's in that clinging that even when we are afraid, we can hang on tight and follow close, no matter what comes our way. And it is into this vow of imitating, into this vow, this notion of clinging, that we have this lectionary text, right? Even more words from Jesus. And the question surfaces for me, and perhaps it will for you, do we really have to cling to and imitate Christ even with texts like these? Do we really have to imitate Christ even when things Jesus said and things Jesus was about were uncomfortable from some on one level or another? So we heard part of this passage in the litany, but if somebody would read Matthew 16, 21 through 28 for me. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thanks, Chelsea. When I read this text and the text before it, just kind of knowing the character of Peter, as I'm sure many of us do, I really believe that fear drove Peter's response in this text. And I mean, who could blame him? A couple of verses over, a few scenes over, he goes from proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God to rebuking Jesus when Jesus tells Peter he would face great suffering and death. And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter that he himself must also deny himself and take up a cross. And while I'm sure it wasn't comfortable to be told by the Messiah, the one that you just proclaimed, go behind me, Satan, I'm so thankful for this exchange. 
however uncomfortable for Peter, and I think however uncomfortable for us. Because really, Peter represents to me all of us would-be disciples, all of us co-ministers trying to follow Jesus. Peter speaks out of his fear, out of uncertainty, out of what he thinks to be true, because messiahs in Peter's day and age were not crucified and killed. He speaks out of, oh, heck no. This is not how it's supposed to go, understanding. Combining the potential to believe and serve with the potential to abscond and abandon. And for Peter, it was fear. A fear that some might claim as legitimate even, that kept him from really being okay with what the imitation of Christ in thought, word, deed, and affection was going to take. I mean, denial and taking up your cross do not seem like ideals. And it is fear, I think, just like Peter's, that holds us in a similar place. Comfortable to imitate Christ in some aspects, but not all. Especially not in the hard, denying oneself, cross-bearing kind of ways. For we, too, often are confusingly confident with our claims upon God and how we think the whole imitation of Christ, the disciple-follower thing should look, and over what aspects of our lives that it should manifest. But I think it is fear holding us in such a way. And that fear, or rationalization, or whatever other guise we may call it, is what's actually keeping us from being surprised by Christ and what might be ahead. And so perhaps living into this vow to imitate Christ in thought, word, deed, and affection without fear means letting down our confidence a little so we might loosen our claims upon God. And maybe it is in the loosening of fear we will be surprised and moved by Christ and what our imitations of Christ might embody, however shocking or uncomfortable, but most definitely transformative. Reverend John Hagberg, a Lutheran pastor, Joel, raises an interesting point about this text. He notes, we tend to hear this as a problem rather than a promise, a duty at best rather than a delight. Our culture, our fears, have shaped us to think that if we take up the cross, it means that we have to give up something. But people in other cultures, less materialistic, less comfortable, however, tend to hear these words as an invitation to join a parade. In the latter cultures, the cross is seen as that which describes the shape of one's life rather than a burden to bear. We are to imitate Christ in thought, word, deed, and affection. What might it look like if this vow, these words, moved from burden to bear to life-giving shape of all aspects of our living?
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's a question. Sorry. I also realized I like wrote these questions. Yeah. Um, for sure. So I can, do you want me to reread it? Great. So the question is, um, what might it look like if this vow moved from burden to bear to life-giving shape of all aspects of our living? So I think um, I had a really good conversation with a friend this week. Just we were talking about how to be our best selves and what you feel like when you're your best version of yourself. And I think for me, it comes when I'm living very intentionally. And I notice that that's sort of a posture I take in life, that intention to approach your day with a certain framework. Um, and I think my personal enemy, and maybe lots of our personal enemies with that is just busyness. You know, you get in the mode of going through your day. So I wonder if, you know, it, it truly was a goal to imitate Christ in thought worthy action, if that was just the posture that I used to set up my day, how would my day look different? If that was the framework around that posture that I, I started my day with, what would it look like if I didn't let busyness run my day, if I approached the beginning of my day with something else? What might it look like if we framed our days and our time around this vow rather than busyness? Thanks. Others, what might it look like? You know, I spend most of my time in this like cold pit of worry that sits right here. <laughs> um, that's just who I am. But you know, and so when I read this, and I, you know, of course I think of it the same way that you first mentioned is like, you know, I would love to do this, but what's going to happen next, right? Um, if I put up this first. But the gift of it is that I can let go of that and follow Christ and I don't have to right? I mean, it is a promise that you, that if you put that aside and actually follow it doesn't like say everything's going to turn out great but, it, you know, it does say that, that that is how you gain your own life. Um, and so it, it is a, a gift and a, and a promise that but yeah, it's hard, it's so hard to get over the, the worry. Very much so. And there are multiple commentators, and one thing that I read that was so beautiful and um, gets to your point, but also cutting too, is it goes on to say in this text, um, really the promise of the gospel too, and even in the cross and in that moment, you see that God. God never leaves, right? Like God with us, God is forever with us, and God being with us is love. The problem is, the commentator said, none of us really believe it fully. Because if we did, sort of the scholar's point in this article is, if we did, then we wouldn't worry about, right, all the cares of the world that seem so great, or we wouldn't, yeah, like stress out or over-intellectualize the proper way to engage in X, Y, or Z rather than just showing up and being on someone's doorstep. But I just, that was convicting for me of like, oh, yeah, what if I don't fully believe that God is love? And that that's part of this that's making it so hard.
speaking from my own, kind of as I was reading that article, what I thought. Others, yeah. Marie? Yeah, and I think on the other side of that worry or busyness or just doing things how they have to be done or passing these through point, through, passing through certain points so your 401k looks the way it's supposed to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, staying in line, like on the other side of that, when, when those things don't become God, um, there's this play. So I think for a long time I thought like, Oh, like taking off the cross. It, yeah, it means like I don't. I don't get any of these things, which may or not be true. But there's this sense of play, like looking through these other verses and other examples of Jesus in the Gospels, constantly um, subverting the systems that are dominating him and everyone around him. Like it becomes, it becomes playful, and it's not that like what you said last week about like. Um, the Moses story, no one's like coming out with like knives, starting a revolution. But there's this like, we're gonna, just gonna flip this, we're gonna flip this system and like be playful with it. And there's risk involved because I'm not held down by it or protected by it by the same way. Um, but when suddenly you get to um, be playful with a system that is making some people humiliated uh, or making other people rich, when suddenly you get to play with, um, you know, an assumption of this is just the way things are done. Um, there's, there's richness in life there that um, is on the, can be on the other side of that, of that worry of, of doing things right. Um, and I, I don't think, like, as, as a child, I don't think I was taught that. It was more like, it's just, it's going to be hard. You're going to just keep asking for forgiveness, and you aren't going to get the things you want if you're a Christian. It just was a very, very simple, bleak way of looking at it. But, um, yeah, it's like, obligation, right? I think that's how it's sort of like, oh, you have to do all these things, but really invitation to play. That's why I just loved um, what the reference said, right? The, the people, there are some people when thinking about taking up their cross, they see it as joining a parade and how different that is than I think how we often see it as a burden, fear, daunting, too overwhelming, where do we even begin? But what if we just saw it as an invitation to enter in and to play or to see what could happen? Thanks. Others, what do you think? Yeah, Luke. Um, I'm in a weird state of mind right now. Um, my, my grandfather died earlier today, um, unexpectedly. And I think um, what it's, like, what I've been, like, sitting here thinking is that, like, we're going to be making all these plans and going to a funeral this week or next week, and uh, it would have been so much better to go last week, you know? And, like, I feel like that's what funerals are for. They're for the, I should have gone last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's the, that's the thing that's kind of mm-hmm. like striking me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Luke. Yeah. So sorry about your grandfather. I should have gone last week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
to you all think pragmatically. Imitating Christ in thought, word, deed, and affection might look like if we weren't too busy being afraid. I know Ben has some thoughts on this because he was sharing them earlier. Not to put you on the spot, but you should go to beer, have grab a beer with Ben sometime. But yeah, what would imitating Christ and thought, word, deed, and affection look like if we weren't too busy being afraid? I guess I have, I don't know what people would be saying this. I'm so much more skeptical of um, the attitudes that I was, say, in high school or um, early, early in college. Because um, uh, I guess, like, who, who is she speaking to and who is he not speaking to? Like, he's not speaking to the Romans, he's not speaking to you know, the Pharisees, and I look a lot more as an American, as a white American male, like a Pharisee or a Roman than the people that Jesus is speaking to. Who am I making more? Who am I, um, you know, making meek? Um, and I think that that, instead of trying to invent ways that I am, I, I am these these things that the Jews, you know, that they they laud. I don't know that I am, and I don't know that these promises are meant for me. And I think um, mm-hmm. working on behalf of those mm-hmm. is much more the cross that I'm supposed. to Completely. One hundred percent wrestle. Yeah. Completely. I kind of laughed. I had the beat <laughs> guess I should know I was gonna be a pastor. I had the Beatitudes written like it was my like uh, what do you call it on the top of walls, you know, like border but not yeah, yeah, yeah. So mine in my bedroom as a like I chose for them to be the Beatitudes as a child. It's kind of weird. <laughs> True life. It's called Granny Smith Apple Green Walls with the Beatitudes written around the top. Um, but more and more becoming convicted that how I understood them for so long is, is that we are not, we are a part of the system, right? And the systems that are I just, uh, causing I'm, I'm, someone in a position of power says the Beatitudes. Suspicion is totally necessary. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I'm sorry, what percent are you Anytime someone in a position of power or wealth um, uh, is quoting the Beatitudes, I, I feel like suspicion. Right. You should immediately be suspicious. I think something I've been, what does this look like? What does this vow really look like if we weren't? clinging on to fear, sort of to get back to your point, Russell. I know for me, I um, think about these things a lot, and I have lots of conversation, and I do little things to try to subvert systems or to play within systems and trying. I do little things, right? Like, I do enough 
But I'm realizing my fear still holds me in of how much I'm willing to risk and give up to really flip these systems and these powers and to stop being a part of, yeah, these powers, that, these powers that be and these powers that are and that are within us and within our society. And I think I'm recognizing the invitation um, that there is a hell of a lot more that I should be doing with my choices, with my time, with my money, with where, yeah, like all the things. <laughs> where one day we will send future children to school, how we're engaged in Durham, this city, what, what, institu like, what institutions are we supporting, what are we not, who are we not seeing, in our, who is not a part of our day-to-day -day world? And why is that? Um, and that that's not a burden to carry but I think an invitation, um, an invitation to love and to deeper joy. But I really like my words, and I really like my articles that I read, and I really love dinner time conversation about it, and I think that those things are really, really important. But I think I'm just getting more and more convicted that that is still so safe. And the gospel is anything but safe. Yeah. Um, yeah, so thank you for bringing that up. Any last thought? SK. Yeah, SK. Sorry. Um, I was thinking more kind of tactically about what a day looks like mm -hmm. when we are um, not ruled by fear and trying to imitate Christ, and a word that's important to me is just presence, mm -hmm. being present. And I think it's not just, it's being present to the depth of transformation, which means that I'm listening not just here, but I'm also listening here. I'm, I'm aware of the stirring of my own senses, of a, a stirring of life within me. And I'm paying attention to that, and I'm continually turning toward that rather than the details of my day. Like, not that like, details don't matter, but that's one of the organizing ways I think that we go throughout our day. Is our presence. Where is our presence as we're looking toward and ever being transformed? I think that's beautiful. And even thinking about presence, thinking about um, the role, right, that in all of this to imitate Christ and thought, word, and deed of just the role of spiritual discipline and praxis, right? And prayer and even being still enough, stilling the voices in our head to have the space to think about where our presence is being asked, where we are being invited. Thanks. One last thought, comment. Solo has something to say now. <laughs> um, all right, well, Mark. Oh, sorry, Brian. Yeah, I just wanted to read um, Luke 6, 24-25. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Can you, can you read it a little louder? Thank you. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when men speak well of you, for their fathers did the same thing to the false prophets.
I just, it's kind of dark, but it's just, I feel like, you know, there's, there's another side to the Beatitudes that I feel like goes right along with what Russell was saying. Very much so. I think that's a great way to end and transition toward confession. So thanks, Brian. Follow my 
gonna forget what this life is all about I'm gonna take that path I'm going in on my own I'm gonna take that fear where like a crown I'm gonna take that fear and wear it like a crown I'm gonna take that fear and wear it like a crown Absolution, we'll sing this song together, Mercy. May every word be spoken and every truth be told. Every promise be unbroken And every gift turn into gold Let there be mercy, mercy, mercy Let there be mercy, mercy, mercy May every curse be broken Every blessing be unbroken, every broken heart be healed. Let there be mercy, mercy, mercy. Let there be mercy, mercy, mercy. Let the water flow, let the light shine. Blood go through me like a river winds Through the valley, through the meadow Through my spirit and my soul just like a river goes Through the mountain, under the moonlight Let the blood go through me to truly see the light Let there be mercy, Lord Oh, let there be mercy, Deeds and deeds 
things I didn't do Let there be mercy for every soul in the city May the Lord have pity over you Let the water flow, let the light shine Let the blood go through me like a river winds Through the valley, through the meadow Through my spirit and my soul just like the river goes Through the mountain let the blood go through me to truly see the light. Let there be mercy, Lord. Oh, let there be mercy, Lord. Jesus filled a ship. Let us sing a song Let the spirit on the face of the water Be the wind and the sail that carries us home So thank you so much for the the bracing honesty of the conversation we just had. I need those kind of conversations in my life. I think we all do, but I know I do. In rewriting the, or re, retooling, what, rewriting the minister's liturgy sounds like it's dangerous or something. That's not really what we did, but we just tried to like, what is the language we use every week? How do we talk about what we're doing? When we get together, what are the words we use and what are those how, how do we wrap those words into these vows we're calling ourselves to? And, and where, where right now, as it's written, it ends, is, is reshaping one of those vows that was trying to get at how do we relate to each other and just saying, we vow to shape our life together around the radical hospitality of our open table. Because that is the language we return to week after week. And I think it's starting to become the language I'm sharing in conversations individually and communally with others in this community. And it's starting to be the way that I think about the work I do on a weekly basis and the way I live and when I greet someone in the street or have a, have a random encounter. It's starting to be that sort of frame. I hope it's that starting to be that frame for all of us. But it's a daunting frame. Because really, as we're getting at tonight, what we're doing here is declaring a practice that's very simple and it's easy to walk into, but it's a challenging practice in that we are declaring it that what we're doing here, the way in which we are practicing here, is going to implicate all of that out there. That what we step into here is actually going to be possible to reshape the entirety of how we engage with the world outside of this place and in every place. Um, and that is challenging because if here is there, if, if the kingdom as we practice it here is going to be the beloved community out there, we're going to need more people and a lot more kinds of people than the people we find around this table every week. If abundance as, as is here is going to happen out there, it's going to inquire us to do some deep inquiry into our own abundance into our own safety if welcome here is extended to everyone as it is here, then again, it's implicating us in questions of our safety and our comfort 
It's, it's, it's inviting us into that reality and implicating us in what it might take to make that true elsewhere and everywhere. And Jesus isn't helping <laughs> because, you know, it's Jesus's body and blood that we're celebrating over every week. He inaugurated this table as this radical table of social transgression that was the very thing that ended up in his body and blood getting laid out on a table to begin with. So it's, it's as big as it can possibly be, it seems. And I think that Russell's question is great and Brian's follow-up. They ask, are these promises for us? Because we're saying they are, but do we deserve this stuff? And I think that's a good question to keep asking ourselves around the table like this. And if the answer is yes, and I believe that it is yes, and we declare every week that it is yes for every conceivable person who could find themselves around this table or any table. If the answer is yes, it has to go back to that radical hospitality thing, which Tim has always done a great job of implicating, echoing Henry Nouwen, radical honesty and radical receptivity. And if we come to this table as radically honest people, admitting to ourselves the complexity of what we're asking of ourselves and each other and what we're implicating ourselves in out there, I think, I think that it is a table for us. And, and I think that it can be a space of mercy where every word spoken and every truth told ushers us back into a reality of something that's bigger than we're ever going to enact but is big enough to encompass all that we would ever do and the best that we could ever do. And, and I think that I, in this conversation tonight, I heard so many echoes of like a song lyric that I, we, we've actually done this once here. It's a, it's a Damien Rice song and it ends with this litany of come, you know, come, come alone, come with friends, come with foes. And I think the thing I like most about that litany is the last one is come let yourself be wrong. And I think we need a table where every single week we come around and say, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm horrifically wrong. Maybe I'm so wrong that I'm propping up the wrongnesses of the world with my misunderstoodness of how right I am, right? But just come and let yourself be that wrong. Maybe you, got some, maybe you got some things right. Surely some of us have some things right. We need to come together as people who are willing to be horribly wrong every week around this table that declares that if we are willing to be horribly wrong, then things can be horribly right. That's what we gather around every week. And I'm so excited about this conversation and this minister's liturgy and thinking about what we've implicated ourselves in and where it leads us as a community. Come into mercy tonight. Come into abundance. Come into welcome. Come and be wrong and seek ways to be right how this table could take us out into Durham and be true out there as we, as we declare it in here. At Emmaus Way, if you're new to us, we pour wine and juice for each other. We, we share bread or gluten-free bread it looks like we even have no more crackers look at that that's abundance but we share these things with each other declaring that this work we're implicating ourselves in is a communal work we do not bear the weight of it alone we bear it together and in that togetherness we find the beauty of what's possible so we invite you to the table tonight break bread Pour wine and juice and celebrate the abundance that is here now and can be always and everywhere. Welcome to the table.